Hi everybody, my name is Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Amen. Ken's at it again. He takes a song and pretty much does the whole sermon in a song before I even start. So thank you, Ken. I can't go wrong from here. Um, Make me a blessing. So often our music, what we sing together in community, it's very aspirational. Um, We're in a good story today, the story of the Good Samaritan. And if I'm to be honest with you, I feel a little ill-equipped to teach on it. I feel a little bit like I'm talking about something I don't know a lot about. A little bit like that song. And even as I sing it, I go, how, how many of my waking minutes am I saying, make me a blessing, Lord? I can count like zero recently. I wish I could say all of them. Now, I know deep within me it's there. I know that my, my longing is to say, Lord, make me a blessing. But here's the reality on the highways and byways of life. The message of Jesus Christ, um, it's hollow if we are not a blessing. And so we have an opportunity today as we jump into and continue our journey down the greatest stories ever told and we explore the parable of the Good Samaritan. Last week we talked about the greatest story ever told is not Jesus with a crowd gathered around him sharing a story. The greatest story ever told is the work of Jesus Christ in your life, which these stories direct and inspire and equip us to know how to live by his power. But the greatest story ever told, last week I said it was was happening that day, well, it starts again today. The greatest story ever told. It's every moment that we wake, that we have a chance to allow God to move in and through us. We have an opportunity to say, Lord, make me a blessing. And we have a man today who comes to Jesus uh, wanting the greatest story ever told, eternal life. And he says, how do I have that? But then he's looking for a loophole. Are you at all like a loophole person? Do you, you know, like maybe practically come every April, we look across our taxes and go, are there any loopholes here? Is there, is there any way for me? So this might surprise you, but no one has ever asked me what my mile time is. No one has ever said, Carlos, how fast do you run a mile? Um, I don't know if it's, I'm not sure why, um, but full disclosure. All right. I once ran a sub six minute mile as a a larger sixth grader. Um, Mile test was coming up and six minutes was like the benchmark. And to all of you, you runners out there, don't judge me. Okay. Let me have my moment. Um, I got a stopwatch for Christmas. One that you could start and stop time. And, and I thought the mile's coming. I need to be able to run a six minute mile. I want to sh- sub six minute mile. I want to show everybody how amazing I am at the mile. So I began my training regimen and my regimen worked like this. My mom drove in the car and mapped out a mile for me. And then every morning before school, I would run that mile, but here's how I'd run it. I would hit start. I'd run as fast as I could till I was out of breath and I'd hit stop. and I'd catch my breath. And then I'd hit start and I'd run as fast. And when I say as fast as I could, I'm talking like 50 yard increments here, all right? So my miles were probably like 30 minute runs, but I was coming in at like 545. (laughs) Through my rigorous training regimen, I'd found a way to conquer the sub six minute mile as a non-athletic 
out of shape non-runner in sixth grade. And so the day of the test came and we all lined up and we all bragged about our times. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, watch me, watch, watch this. So the whistle blows and we start running and I'm out full on sprint because that's how I train. 50 yards in, I'm like, and everybody runs by me, right? My mile time was 14 minutes. My mile time was 14 minutes because um, I'm a loophole guy. I like to know, is there a way around this? And I love the lawyer in today's story. We're going to jump in and we're going to read it. He's a loophole guy. He's, now, we, we, can, we can wrestle with what he's about. But at the end of the day, like you or I, we say, okay, wait, what, what's the standard? Okay, so what can I do to get in under that standard? What do you ask of me, Lord? Okay, what, what else can I do um, that's slightly different than that? What does it take? Oh, it takes that? Well, is there another way in? And at the end of the day, we end up thinking we're running a six-minute mile and we're out of breath chugging in at 14 minutes. A little bit embarrassed, a little bit uncertain of what happened. Didn't we do everything right? And so let's go to this story. Let's take a look at the master storyteller Jesus as he gathers people around him. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 onward. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the greatest story ever told question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And just to show that he really knew the law and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. Here comes the loophole. Uh, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, um, but, but who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Let's pray and jump into the text. Father, we thank you for the audacity of how you speak into our current reality. Always, timelessly, your scriptures never fail. Reminding us once again that it's not a matter of religious rites, customs, traditions, checking off certain boxes, but it's a matter of our heart and it's a matter of love and that you call us to go and do likewise. And yet, God, I'm 
I suspect we all would feel a bit inadequate in this. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it brings to us as we learn how to truly be alive. In Jesus' name, amen. So recap this story. You've got a lawyer. He comes to Jesus. He says, uh, how do I inherit eternal life? It's an honest question. It's a big question. I don't know if there's a bigger question you could ask. He says, how do I have life everlasting, beginning now, never ending? How do I have that? And Jesus says, well, you know the law. How's it written? And the lawyer rattles it off. And the part I love is when Jesus gets to, when the, when the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And, and so think about this. He's well-versed. He gets. Uh, earlier in, in, a, in a different conversation, I believe a different conversation uh, with a lawyer, somebody says, well, what's the greatest law? And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God. And then he says, and the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So maybe, maybe this guy was there. Maybe it is this guy, but he knows, he knows how to give the full on answer. But then I love how he gets tied up on neighbor. It's like mystical. He's like, wow, you've used it like my neighbor. Who's my neighbor, Lord? Can you explain this? Wouldn't you think, like if I said that to you, if I said, Dan, Dan, love your neighbors, would you say, Carlos, who are my neighbors? Oh, you'd be, okay, I know my neighbors. They live in my city. They live on my street. I work with them. I know my neighbors. But the lawyer, a little bit like us, is looking for a loophole. Who are my neighbors? And so let's jump into this story and see as Jesus unfolds um, this parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to ask you a question first. Um, how many seconds do you think it took for me to read the actual story of Jesus? Like less than a minute, right? Less than a minute. So this series is called The Greatest Stories Ever Told. Um, and I want to give you permission as you engage with the word of God to not disconnect, don't put yourself in the constraints of 60 seconds to read a story of Jesus. There's no way a rabbi sharing a story with a crowd stood up, said something for 60 seconds, and then they moved on to Mary and Martha's house. There's engagement, there's wrestling. You know Jesus, gonna, he is gonna open a powder keg in this conversation that he brings forward. And the disciples, as was common and in their tradition, are gonna look at the rabbi, they're gonna say, wait, he was on what road? Oh yeah, we know that, he was doing what? Okay, who a priest came along? They're gonna, they're gonna have a whole dialogue and they're gonna look to their rabbi the whole time to weave it through and bring about a teaching. So Jesus starts, he said, there's a wanderer. The lawyer asked the question, and then Jesus says, there's a wanderer and he's on a road. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho, I have a picture uh, of the area here. I've never been there, but some have. As some in this room were talking about it earlier today, and they just said, it's, it's desolate, it's barren, it's, it's a steep descent. It's actually uh, the drop from Jerusalem, which is 2,700 feet above sea level to Jericho, it's 17 miles away, and Jericho's 800 feet below sea level. So you have a massive distance and drop. It's more than 200 feet per mile. It's barren, void of vegetation, hilly with numerous hiding places. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, preached on this parable and talked about visiting there. He said this, as soon as we got on the road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. In the days of Jesus, it was known as the bloody pass. And you know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over the man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible they felt the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for a quick and easy capture. 
And so the first question the priest asked when the, and the first question the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what might happen to me? That's the setting of where Jesus tells this story. Those listening are familiar with it. They could look out over it. They could say, oh, that's not a good road. Why is that man wandering alone? Why is he traveling down that road? And then Jesus does something great. He's like, hey, a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan walk into a bar. He like, he kind of goes down this, this familiar like thread people are used to. It's, and it goes like this, a priest, a Levite, and a common Jew. That was the rabbinical model. You would start with a priest and the priest would disappoint and the common Jews listening would go, oh, and here comes the Levite and the Levite would disappoint and the common Jews listening would then go, but we, we're God's people, we're the common, we are the hero. And the rabbi would tell the story about how the common Jew, but Jesus flips the script and he says a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And at this point, it gets heated really, really fast. And the reason for this, you just, you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the audience a little bit to understand the intensity of what Jesus does here. I can barely do it. I just had to sit in it for all week and go, wow, what would this have been like? Because after the priest who looks over and does nothing and the Levite who looks over and does nothing comes a, a who? Samaritan. A Samaritan comes along and, uh, and Jesus has flipped. He, he, he's thrown a total curveball into his story. And he does so partially by bringing in a racially charged relationship for those who are listening. It's most likely there were not any Samaritans following Jesus. There were not any in hearing distance. It was only a Jewish crowd. And they're listening in and the hero of the story becomes a Samaritan. And I want to be clear, this morning is not a message about racism. Jesus was not choosing, the question was not, Lord, should I be racist? But he chooses to tell a story in a very clear way to un, unequivocally say, there is no room in my people for division between one person and another. There's just no room. And he takes a relationship that for his followers would have been one of the most permissive to be divided among. And so he jumps in, there's this fever pitch as he brings the Samaritan and you know his listeners were squirming. And here's why. Do you, if you're familiar with the story, a little bit earlier, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's gonna give his life as a sacrifice. And he stops in a, a village in Samaria and they don't welcome him. They don't let him stay. This happens just before Jesus tells the story. They say, you're not welcome here. And his disciples, because they're followers of Jesus, say, Lord, forgive them, love. No, they, they say, God, they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? That's, the, that's like a direct quote, all right? They have no room for these Samaritans. And Jesus is like, no, let's move on. That's fresh in his experience with the men and the women who are following him. Samaritans reject Jesus staying in their village and his followers want God to smite them off the face of the earth. And Jesus says, there's a priest, there's a Levite, and there's a Samaritan. At this point, his story becomes a fantasy. It really does. Everybody listening has to suspend reality. And what's this Samaritan going to do? And, and I want to be clear. Sometimes when we look at this text, we talk about Samaritans. So they were, they were a mixed race. 
uh, with Jewish people and they had a long-standing argument about where proper worship took place. But it's not just that the Samaritan's an outcast. Um, uh, contemporary, uh, contemporary historians of this time note that Samaritans were raiding Jewish villages. They were murdering, they were pillaging. It was, uh, so being a Samaritan was not just being uh, someone who wasn't accepted. Being a Samaritan was being someone who was an enemy as well. So as we get into that as our whole backdrop, we know what Jesus is about to do. We're going to see something real fascinating happen here. So he walks through. What does the Samaritan do? Bandages up the wounds, uh, takes the person, uses oil and wine for their healing, puts them on their donkey, takes them to an inn, gives them two days wages to care for them and says, I, and I'll be back and I'll cover all of the expenses. So the lawyer asks what? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with, who acted like a neighbor? He doesn't directly answer the lawyer's questions. Who acted like my, the neighbor? And the lawyer says the one who showed mercy. And church, this is where we sometimes get stuck. Um, I've been following Christ for 23 years now, 24 years. And over and over in my life and in community, we say, yeah, but like, how am I supposed to love? We need some teaching on how to love. I need to dig into the scriptures and really understand how I'm supposed to love. Like, I need this parable of the Good Samaritan so that I can learn how to love. Like, the, I, so I bandage up wounds, I put on oil. I would contend we overcomplicate this. The issue is not that we don't know how, it's that we can't very well. Here, here's what I mean by that. Later on in one of the texts in 1 Corinthians to the church, the author there says, hey, here's what love is. Pretty familiar passage. Some of you might have had it read at your wedding. Popular in that place. Well, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through seven. My hope for us is not that we walk away learning a little more how to love. I think we, we have a pretty good idea how to love. It's that we allow the word of God to speak into our heart to say, hope that moves, it has to look different than hope that didn't move, that doesn't move, which has been part of the story of the church throughout history. There have been challenges and moments where we have aligned ourselves with the lawyer and we've said, I know, love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. Check out my Christian living library. Man, I read books. I know so much about how to love the Lord my God. And I sing beautifully in the choir. Choir, thank you for serving us. I sing so beautifully there. And I have welcomed people on this campus year over year over year. We're all with the lawyer in that one. Those are not bad things. That's part of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus comes in and he says that second part, love your neighbor. And the lawyer, I, I appreciate his honesty. Okay, God, but who's my neighbor? Can you just tell me so I can go do that? I think if I knew that answer, I would stink at that. If, if Jesus said, Carlos, here are your neighbors, Sally, Tom, Jojo, and Mike, I don't know why they're my neighbors, but they're your neighbors, go love them. I'd be like, oh, really, Lord? Can we like reduce that list down just a little bit? Can you give me one? Can you get, that's, that's a little bit how I'm wired and I'm a decent person. I'm a decent person, but Jesus says, you know, there was, um, 
there was somebody who loved the Lord. They loved the Lord so much that they walked from Jericho to Jerusalem and they spent their time serving in the temple and they helped the people of Israel experience the one true God. They loved the Lord that much. But on their way home from their temple duties, they came across a man, a brother, who was beaten and stripped and left half dead. And they just couldn't be bothered. They had no reason they couldn't be bothered. And then a Levite came who was responsible for like uh, the care of the temple and the preparation of the temple. And so another person who's gone from Jerusalem, from Jericho up the, the hill to Jerusalem to care for God's people, they're on their way done with their duties. They're on their way home. And maybe it's because of ceremonial uh, laws related to the touching of dead bodies. There's maybe something to that, but it, it's as unlikely as it's likely. They were done with their duties. They had just finished and plus, there's a lot in the law about how to deal with a brother who's at the point of death and in need that in Jewish tradition superseded the ceremonial law of touching dead bodies. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why they don't stop. They just don't. It's not important. He needs to get to the Samaritan. He's got to get there because at the Samaritan, he's going to say, you know who the neighbor is? And then he unloads this racially charged story. In the story... It's, it's the ritual, the tradition. It's very clear what Jesus is saying. Hey, great tradition and religiosity is not loving your neighbor. That's what keeps them. But I, I don't know that that's us today. I don't know that our issue is um, religious tradition, that that's what keeps us from loving our neighbor. I wonder if it's actually fear. And maybe that's how we associate with the first two travelers. It's, it's just legitimately fear. And the fear might be as base as I just don't want to be inconvenienced. My life is already really full. I barely make it through the day. I don't want to be inconvenienced. Or maybe it's actually fear that the stranger will harm you. It's actually fear that this person, they might have my harm in mind. Uh, my first call as a pastor was in Connecticut and we lived in a traditional parsonage on the side of the road a busy road between Connecticut and Massachusetts. And it was a regular occurrence for someone to knock on our door with a backpack on their shoulders and say, uh, hey, can I, can I get a bite to eat? It was a church house. I was a brand new pastor. And um, my wife and I had a lot of really good conversations. Uh, I mean, I had two young children. And all of these travelers were men. And all of them were unkempt. All of them would come and they'd sit at my dinner table. And we'd eat together. And then they'd leave and I'd go, God, what am I doing? Am I, am I exposing my family to something horrific? Am I, and just that, that, that fear was right there. And I didn't, I, I'm a child of, the, of that type of care and love. I was brought into people's homes. We were cared for by people. People took risks on my family. They took risks on me. So it wasn't like that was foreign to me. But boy, once my kids are at the table and my wife is at the table, Maybe I can just meet them at the door and give them a can of green beans and send them on their way. Green beans were like all we had, so they were never impressed with our meals. Um, it was always, I'm like, sorry, canned veggies, here we go. Now we eat fresh veggies. But, um, but this fear, or fear of wasting our resources. I mean, we need to be responsible people, right? How often do we look at our time and money and go, well, that person's almost dead. So I'm going to save up my money for someone who's got a little more hope. Someone that's going to have a little better chance. I think it's fear. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it is, maybe it is your religious convictions and tradition. And if it is, Jesus speaks to you bluntly and plainly. He says, your traditions do not get to supersede people. 
but maybe it's fear. But he speaks bluntly to us as well. He says, your fear does not get to supersede people because the lawyer was saying, Jesus, what are the limits to my love? And Jesus was saying, there's only love without limits. The minute you put a limit on it, you're no longer talking about love. There's only love without limits. And the thing I've discovered in my life, because this becomes intensely personal, is that my prejudices and my, my preconceptions, uh, even some of the things I hold dearly, some of my hatreds, they get exposed and they get challenged and they get destroyed, not by you sitting me down and telling me I'm wrong, not by political processes or structures, not by evidence and logic, but by flesh and blood. I change when I meet and become friends with people who refuse to fit my stereotypes of who's safe, of who fits, of who belongs. And what happens is either they or my stereotypes have to go. I'm left with that place. And Jesus confronts the lawyer and says, there's a man on the side of the road and the priest and the Levite choose something other than the man. And the Samaritan chooses mercy. He chooses what's right. So we don't, kind of in summary, we don't get to define who our neighbor is. We don't get to. You only get to be a neighbor. You don't get to define it. We don't get to say in advance, my neighbors are, it's nearness and need that define who that's going to be. It's flexible, it changes, it adapts. And that type of living is needed. I'm gonna say now more than ever because it's now. I'm sure we could have said that any other time in history. But now more than ever, we need the world and if you're a guest with us today, we hope what you see in the life of the church, whether it's this one or any other church or a friend you know who loves Jesus, what you see is that love does not define its objects. It discovers its objects and pours itself out on them. Love does not say this is the boundary that I play in. It discovers those in need and pours itself out on them to the rate of two days wages, embarrassment, Social, being a social outcast, crossing over lines of prejudice and race and saying, I am going to pick you up out of the ditch. I'm going to bandage your wounds. I'd like to think some of the times the conversations I've been in, we would say things like, yeah, but was that a good use of those bandages? Is that wine? I mean, is that the best use of that wine? Taking that person to the inn. And what, if they, what if they order really expensive meals when they're recovering? Like, am I really going to come back and pay all of the wages? And I think Jesus is up to something. Many of you know, I can even see like the nodding in your head. You know where he is going with this story because he ends. It's only one of the few parables that says, go and do likewise, period. Now I'm off to see Mary and Martha. And do you think that lawyer left like, oh, I get it. It's so simple. Why didn't I understand before that I have to radically put aside everything I hold dear and that shapes and forms me and just go and lavishly pour out all my resources on people I'm not even sure deserve it. Then I can have an eternal life. You know, he walked away a little bit like, wow, wait, go and do likewise? So day one, he's charged up. He's up and down that road walking fast as he can all day looking for people. And he finally finds somebody. He's like, oh, yes. And that day he pours out his resources and his love and he helps that person. And he's, it's good. It feels good. You know that? 
Day two, he's a little bit tired and a friend calls and he wants to go see the friend. And so he only spends, by day five, he's like, ah, I can't have eternal life. I just can't do it. It's not within me. So I want to leave you with a couple questions and I want to turn the script on this parable. We always enter in like the lawyer with this question. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? What's going to happen to me? And when Jesus is done telling the parable, the lawyer is left with this question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The people of God are forever called to see those in need. To see those in need. Us, you know what we're promised? Like if you read the scriptures, we're promised like to die for our faith throughout most of history. That's the end game. So it's like, if you love me, you might lose your life, but you're going to spend every waking minute helping other people find theirs. That's the economy that Jesus sets up. So the question we go in with is if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And so I just have a question for you. Can I recognize blank as my neighbor? I do want to be practical. I'm convinced that each of you has somebody or someone or something that you can put in that blank. Maybe it's actually a person. You know, it's crazy. This is crazy. For some of us, it's a family member. It's a family member. We, just, we cannot treat them like a neighbor. In today's day and age, if you engage at all on social media where we've learned how to talk and listen, we just say stuff, um, within our church, there are friendships that have ended because of who voted for who. There are friendships that have ended because of who liked or posted what article. And I'm like, come on, people. Like, if we can't put Democrat in this list or Republican in this blank, what are we doing? Well, I'll tell you what we're doing. We're being human. We're being the people we are. And that's where the hope in this parable comes. I leave you with this. Um, There's no doubt that the lawyer failed at satisfying this part of the law. And Jesus' intention was never for him to succeed. His intention was to set up a story. His intention was to let this lawyer and everybody hearing know The current system doesn't work. Sin, it's too powerful. It has too much of a grip on your heart. You can try, but you will not overcome it. And you know where you'll end up? In the ditch, like the wanderer on the road, beaten, bruised, broken, and no religion, no practice, no song, no Bible study can save you. Who saves you is the one who comes along and picks you up out of the ditch who bandages your wounds, who says, I will pay everything needed for this traveler to have life. And in a crazy eschatological way, and when I come back, I'm gonna settle that account. His hearers wouldn't have heard that story then. They had no context for that. But when Jesus hangs on the cross and he breathes his last breath, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't know why they can't be a neighbor. And then when that tomb is empty and the resurrected Lord is looking in the eyes of his dear friends saying, go and love the world, it's a new story now because I'm leaving the spirit of God with you, the spirit of God with you. And our practice of being a neighbor begins with Jesus Christ. 
That's why we so desperately want you all to know him. So you can experience the greatest story ever told with Jesus living and moving in and through you. That's our only hope. And it doesn't mean that in Jesus you will never fail at this again. It simply means in Jesus this is the only way you'll succeed at this. So as we close today and as we sing, turn your eyes to Jesus. Not the man on the road, not the Samaritan, not the Levite, not the priest. Because that's what he intended in his story. At the end of the day that you would look at this story and your eyes would be turned up to the cross. And you'd say, now it makes sense. Jesus Christ has made all things new. Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason, and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.